recorded live. Sorry about that. The music player just didn't want to stop. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christoginia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, July 10th, 2015. Before we begin, I would like to um, say that we just sent off the notice for the 40th edition of the Saxon Messenger. It was a... um, a monthly publication for about three years, and last year we only had the chance to publish two issues. This year I hope to bring it back up to at least a quarterly. The um, the email list at Christagenia has about, well, well, probably at least 100 subscribers that are using email addresses from AT&T and related networks. AT&T has had Christagenia blocked for no good reason for um, for probably about a year now. I can't even send out um, email from my personal Christagenia accounts to anybody who has a Prodigy.net, AT&T.net, SBCglobal.net email address. And I make um, probably weekly appeals to AT&T to remove me from their block lists. And they just refuse. So I'm sure some Jew at AT&T or with some AT&T account probably keeps reporting me for some reason or another. I, I don't know what else it could be. And, of course, AT&T won't share any information whatsoever with me. Perhaps one solution is for people that have AT&T.net accounts or SBC Global or other such accounts related to AT&T to go to AT&T.net and complain that you're not getting email from org, and that would be appreciated. If there's 120 to 150 people on our mailing list with AT&T addresses and half of them do that, and I'm sure at least half of them probably listen to these podcasts, if half of them do that, then maybe we will um, get the issue resolved. Otherwise, I wouldn't know what to do about it. This is the last of seven segments presenting Professor D. Caius, which is Professor Doctor, Caius Fabricius's Positive Christianity in the Third Reich. Tonight we shall present the third and final part of the second half of his booklet, and also his own short conclusion to the work. The second half of Fabricius' booklet is titled The Christian Foundations of National Socialism, and it was divided into three parts. The first two parts are kinship with God and love for one's neighbor, and we have already discussed them at length. This third part is entitled, or is titled, 
redemption. And in it, Fabricius discusses three topics, sin and the national corruption, regeneration and the national uprising, and finally, the Redeemer and the Fuhrer. In that last section, we shall see that national socialists did not confuse Hitler for Christ, although there are those today from among both the admirers and the detractors of Adolf Hitler who wrongly think otherwise. Here, Fabricius displays some sound Christian ideas, such as the relationship of national sin to the state of a nation, and of national repentance from sin to a nation's recovery. But he also displayed some wrong ideas, such as his Roman Catholic universalism, which will become evident once again in some of his statements here. The idea of God's children becoming Christians and complying voluntarily to God's commandments, that idea is the promise of Scripture. Yet the Catholic idea, which Fabricius espoused, is that somehow anyone can become one of God's children by merely accepting Christ, an idea which is certainly not found in Scripture, although it is the prevalent Judeo-Christian idea today. With this, and with no further fanfare, we will continue with part two of Fabricius's booklet entitled The Redemption. That life, in all its fullness and depth, which Christians, as God's children, carry within them and continually strive to make more perfect and complete, exists in them through Christ, the Son of God. Real Christians become, have become such through the real Christ. Without him, they simply would not exist. Hence, the reality of Christ is the indispensable presupposition for the Christian life, and everything we have hitherto dealt with was, without making mention of his name, a description of the reality of Christ. We must now treat of this point in more detail. It is, however, neither possible nor permissible to do so here in the exhaustive manner of a detailed doctrinal system and we must perforce confine ourselves to the few important points concerned with our special inquiry into the relationship between Christianity and National Socialism. In the following exposition, therefore, I must leave some important points untouched which personally are close to my heart. The main consideration at the moment is to give a simple and clear outline, intelligible to all, including those who are not yet capable of grasping the subtle distinctions in Christian life and thought. And all of this is true. So long as we adhere to the biblical understanding that only the white nations are counted in the reckoning, of the Adamic race of Scripture, and that the white children of Israel dispersed throughout Europe in ancient times 
are the subjects of all of the promises in Christ. Of course, Fabricius was blind to all of those things. These Christians should strive to be more perfect and complete, not on some non-existential plane of the imagination, but by trying to keep God's law as Christ himself admonished. Fabricius had these um, uniterated ideas of perfection and completeness, some sort of spiritual perfection, I gather, or spiritual completeness, which may be expressed in brotherly love, but without God's law, all of those things are subjective, and Christians could basically justify doing whatever makes them feel good. What Fabricius didn't do was stress, even though he stresses the need for general morality, he did not stress the need to keep the law of God. He continues by saying, the fact that the reality of life and the relationship of God as a father to his children rests on the reality of Christ is explained as follows in the Christian faith. Man, as a creature born into the world, is not already a child of God in the full sense of the word. And we would have to um, contest that because Adam was indeed the son of God. And the children of Israel were indeed, in Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 1, considered the children of God. And they would be accounted God's children as long as they kept his law. And if they refused to keep his law, he would chastise them. Because, as Paul of Tarsus says, God chastises sons and not bastards. So even in chastisement, it can be demonstrated again and again throughout Scripture. The children of Israel were still considered the children of God, simply as a matter of their race. But we'll continue with Fabricius. And he says... Man as a creature born into the world is not already a child of God in the full sense of the word. He can only become one by undergoing a recreation or regeneration while in his natural state he is full of faults and failings, or as we say, he is sinful. Regeneration or recreation, however, takes place through God's operative power particularly in his educating mankind in history and the individual in the course of his life. In the midst of this divine operative power, however, stands Jesus Christ, the Redeemer. Thus, the closer consideration of redemption through Christ may best be divided into a threefold inquiry. We must think of, in turn, the fact of sin, regeneration, and finally, of Jesus Christ himself. And in each case, ask ourselves the question, what does this mean to National Socialism?
And here Fabrici is, is tantalizingly close to our Christian identity understanding of history and scripture, but he never really reaches it because he himself does not have the background in ancient history whereby he could reach it. Fabricius speaks of God's operative power, particularly in his educating mankind in history. But if man does not know where he came from, if he does not know his full history, then how does he attain such an education? For instance, Paul told the Galatians that the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, where he also demonstrated the understanding that these Galatians to whom he had written were indeed descended from the children of Israel of the ancient Assyrian deportations, which occurred in the 8th and 7th centuries B.C., just before the Germanic tribes, of whom the Galatahi were a significant portion, began migrating into Europe from Asia. If we as a race come to understand our full history, we can indeed see the hand of God educating mankind in history. The first point Fabricius intends to make in this section on redemption is sin and national corruption. And he says, when seriously minded people hold fast to a high standard of life, every deviation from the path leading towards the goal they are striving to reach creates in them a feeling of acute tension. The more such people gaze with clear vision at the reality surrounding them and the true state of their interior lives, the more plainly do they see how far they fall short of perfection. And so they feel their own shortcomings all the more keenly as being the opposite to all they ought and desire to be. And this is why Christians cannot be libertarians, because Christians should not tolerate sin. Libertarianism is an ideology which was created by Jews to convince Christians that they should have to coexist with sin. So it was in Weimar, Germany, and our circumstances today are the result of an acceptance of libertarianism. Fabricius continues, Thus do all earnest Christians, whose relationship to God is that of children to a father, and who have gained a victory over the world, feel that something is lacking in their lives, and as much as they are not perfect children of God, and have not yet overcome the world. And the more serious they are, and the more calmly they consider their real estate, the more convinced they are of their sinfulness, which means living at enmity with God and in subjection to the world. As the Apostle James says, a friend of the world is an enemy of God. They may perhaps have something in their hearts 
that is of the peace of God, of voluntary obedience to God, and of humility, in short, of thoughts inherent in all those who, in very truth, are God's children. But at the same time, they experience again and again unrest and conflict in their own hearts, are resentful and disobedient to the divine will, discouraged too, and desperate even, and arrogantly claim the right to be masters of their own lives. But when the children of God have gained a victory over the world, evidenced by their vigorously emphasizing and appreciating all that is sacred and good, as well as all the other inestimable values in this life. They will, on the other hand, always feel the most keen distress and regard as sinful all attempts to give preference to what is sacrilegious, evil, and mean. And if, of the temporal virtues, the generous and forgiving love for one's neighbor prevails, and ungrudging loving-kindness, as evidenced in confidence and service, takes a foremost place. Then, hatred, in all its various forms and effects, discord and envy, distrust and arrogance, will be looked upon as sin. All this is clearly realized by Christian minds as the bare truth. No attempts being made to hide or excuse anything, either in regard to oneself or to anyone else. It may therefore be universally said, the higher, man, the higher a man's aspirations are, the more seriously does he regard sin, and the greater and more momentous does its magnitude appear in his eyes. Conversely, the less noble his point of view, the more lightly does he look upon sin and is all the more readily prepared to minimize its importance or perhaps to deny it altogether. And here most of what Fabricius says concerning the will to do good and the fault of sin is correct. And he is really only paraphrasing the Apostle Paul, who discussed at length the two natures of the Adamic man in his epistles, the fleshly, which is inclined towards sin, and the spiritual, which is inclined towards God. And Paul talks about that, especially in the epistle to the Romans. It is inevitable that every man is going to sin in one way or another, but Man does well, and man overcomes the world when he recognizes that the law of God is righteous. In the second chapter of his first epistle, the Apostle John explained that men overcome the world when the word of God abides in them. At John's time, when he wrote that epistle, he was referring to the Old Testament. Word of God. But Fabricius should have qualified what he meant by hate, because not all hate is bad. Rather, David, King David, who is described in Acts chapter 13 as being a man after God's own heart, David said, Do not I hate them? 
O Lord, that hate thee. And am I not grieved with those that rise up against thee? I hate them with a perfect hatred. I count them mine enemies. And that's in the Psalms of David. Likewise, it is said in both the Old Testament and the New Testament that God himself hates Esau. Why would that be? In his epistle to the Hebrews, Paul tells us why. He tells us that Esau was a profane man and a fornicator. And the way Paul used that word fornicator in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and elsewhere means that Esau was a race mixer as the Genesis account of the life of Esau also fully informs us. Hatred is a mechanism. Hatred is a mechanism by which we have the ability to defend the things we love. Hatred is normal, and it is godly when we as Christians have hatred for the things which God hates. The Catholic Church fails miserably because it never taught this. Christians cannot hate their brethren. The Apostle John also wrote that he that hates his brother is in darkness, and whoever hates his brother is a murderer. So we have an obligation as Christians to love what God loves, to never hate our brethren, and to hate what God hates. Fabricius continues. The extreme seriousness with which the question of sin is met has always been a special characteristic of the Christian mind, more particularly in Christian Germany. Never has one of the great churches, meaning the German churches, taught that everything a man does is sin. Such a view is only entertained by a few pessimistic philosophers and theologians. Rather, do the churches emphasize that in spite of sin, the creative goodness of nature has not disappeared, but the consciousness of existing sin plays an important part in the depths of the interior life and in the popular sermon. Indeed, many congregations feel a sense of well-being in hearing the preacher continually rouse men's consciousness by references to sin, shaking them out of the lethargy of their souls. Even today, we see the Judaized denominational churches take out of context the phrase where it says in Isaiah chapter 64, all our righteousness are, is as filthy rags, as if man can do nothing good. But rather, the passage which precedes that very saying says of God that he meets him that rejoices and works righteousness. Those that remember thee in thy ways, behold, thou art wroth, for we have sinned 
in those, meaning those people still doing righteously, in those is continuance, and we shall be saved. Therefore, Isaiah chapter 64 is explaining national sin, national punishment, and national redemption on account of those of the nation who would seek to do good. However, today, those same Judaized denominational churches typically only discuss personal sin. They don't discuss national sin. If they do, it's very rare. That's because, in America at least, under the IRS laws, the churches are even forbidden from discussing national sin. And therefore, our nation, which has become a Jewish libertarian nation through the diktats of the tax system, faces the wrath of God once again. Fabricius continues and says, the very opposite is the view of the free thinkers and adherents of free religions, both national and international. Ever since the age of liberalism, there has prevailed amongst philosophers and the intellectual movements following in their train the universal conviction that good predominates in human nature and that man must certainly be able to attain perfection by himself were he not prevented from doing so either by others or by unfavorable conditions in his environment. Severe criticism is therefore meted out to those clergy who preach on sin and repentance in the churches, and a demand is made rather to help man by continually emphasizing the good that is in them and for the rest to create more favorable surroundings. Many theories and practical experiments based on this shallow optimism have marked the work of the last few centuries. The biggest attempt of all is Marxism, the results of which system may be studied in Russia today, where the would-be good nature of youth freed from all family ties, family ties, riots at will in every conceivable kind of excess and crime. Germany, too, was not spared similar experiments, if only to a small extent. For instance, after November 1918, when the Marxists opened the prisons, broke the canes in the schools, turned the reformatories into holiday homes, and reaped thereby an increase in dissolution and crime. And, of course, they did basically the same thing to a great extent in America in the 1960s and 70s as the result of liberal policies. This same attitude we see prevail in America today, and it prevailed in Weimar Germany, that the public preaching of a necessity for moral behavior is discouraged and even lambasted. In fact, in many places in the West today, it is even considered a hate crime 
to preach against things like sodomy and other filthy perversions. In Mein Kampf, Adolf Hitler talked about the gross immorality which prevailed in Germany during the Weimar years, and especially in the light of the syphilis epidemics which struck the nation at that time. We can discern from Fabricius's words here that churches in Weimar Germany were being discouraged from preaching against immorality, just as churches in the West are being discouraged today. Adolf Hitler never blamed the churches of Germany for the immorality of the Weimar years, but instead he had correctly blamed the constant attacks on Christian religion for creating the circumstances which led to the immorality of the Weimar period. In volume 1, chapter 10 of Mein Kampf, he said in part, and I quote from the Murphy translation, of course, all these symptoms which preceded the final collapse of the Second Empire must be attributed to the lack of a definite and uniformly accepted Weltanschauung and the general uncertainty of outlook consequent on that lack. This uncertainty showed itself when the great questions of the time had to be considered, one after another, and a decisive policy adopted towards them. This lack is also accountable for the habit of doing everything by halves, beginning with the educational system, the shilly-shally, the reluctance to undertake responsibilities, and finally, the cowardly tolerance of evils that were even admitted to be destructive. Visionary humanitarianisms became the fashion. In weakly submitting to these aberrations and sparing the feelings of the individual, in other words, don't call the, the don't call the homosexual a sodomite or a faggot because you're going to hurt his feelings. In weakly submitting to these aberrations and sparing the feelings of the individual, the future of millions of human beings was sacrificed. And that's just as it is throughout the West today under the guise of libertarianism and tolerance. Hitler goes on to say, an examination of the religious situation before the war shows that the general process of disruption had extended to this sphere also. A great part of the nation itself had for a long time already ceased to have any convictions of a uniform and practical character in their ideological outlook on life. And the Jews were pushing humanism and campaigning against Christianity in Germany since the 16th, 15th century. Hitler goes on to say, in this matter, the point of primary importance 
was by no means the number of people who renounced their church membership, but rather the widespread indifference. And we see the same thing in our society today. People that claim to be Christian are indifferent to the moral climate of the nation. While the two Christian denominations maintained missions in Asia and Africa for the purpose of securing new adherence to the faith, these same denominations were losing millions and millions of their adherents at home in Europe. And we know, identity Christians should know, that the denominations themselves are corrupt and driven by numbers and profit rather than by sound Christian ideals. Today, we see them doing that same thing that they had done in pre-Hitlerian Europe. They recruit Mexicans and other aliens in numbers as large as possible in order to replace disaffected whites. Hitler goes on to say, these former adherents, meaning the German whites, these former adherents either gave up religion wholly as a directive force in their lives, or they adopted their own interpretation of it. The consequences of this were especially felt in the moral life of the country. In parentheses, it may be remarked that the progress made by the missions in spreading the Christian faith abroad was only quite modest in comparison with the spread of Mohammedanism. And of course, aliens should not be Christians at all. Hitler says, it must be noted too that the attack on the dogmatic principles underlying ecclesiastical teaching increased steadily in violence. And we see this today, where the maintenance of dogmatic Christian principles is considered hate and, even in many nations, criminalized, as it has been in Canada and in England or Britain. And yet, this human world of ours would be inconceivable, this is Adolf Hitler, Mein Kampf, would be inconceivable without the practical existence of religious belief. The great masses of a nation are not composed of philosophers. For the masses of the people, especially, faith is absolutely the only basis of a moral outlook on life. The various substitutes that have been offered, referring to humanism and paganism and, and clowns such as Nietzsche, the various substitutes that have been offered have not shown any results that might warrant us in thinking that they might usefully replace the existing denominations. But if religious teaching and religious faith were once again accepted by the broad masses as active forces in their lives, then the absolute authority of the doctrines of faith would be the foundation of all practical effort. There may be a few hundreds of thousands of superior men who can live wisely and intelligently 
and meaning morally, of course, without depending on the general standards that prevail in everyday life. But the millions of others cannot do so. Now, the place which general custom fills in everyday life corresponds to that of general laws in the state and dogma in religion. And, of course, all these things must agree for society to function properly. Hitler goes on to say, the purely spiritual idea is of itself a changeable thing that may be subjected to endless interpretations. In other words, being spiritual is not good enough for the maintenance of a moral society. And Hitler says, it is only through dogma that it is given a precise and concrete form, without which it could not become a living faith. Otherwise, the spiritual idea would never become anything more than a mere metaphysical concept, or rather a philosophical opinion. Accordingly, the attack against dogma is comp comparable to an attack against the general laws on which the state is founded. And so this attack would finally lead to complete political anarchy if it were successful, just as the attack on religion would lead to a worthless religious nihilism. Here Hitler indirectly explains how the Jews have totally undermined the West. When one attacks Christianity, he attacks the foundation of all Western governments. And thereby, he attacks the foundation of all Western law and moral order. And thereby, he becomes an aid to the Jews. And for this reason alone, all secular white nationalists and all so-called pagans are basically whores for the Jew because they've assisted in the undermining of Western society. They've enabled the Jew. Hitler says the political leader should not estimate the worth of a religion by taking some of its shortcomings into account. But he should ask himself whether there be any practical substitute in a view which is demonstrably better. Until such a substitute be available, only fools and criminals would think of abolishing the existing religion. The shortcomings of Christianity are not in Christ, but rather they are found in the Jewish subversion of Christian doctrine, which has been going on for nearly 2,000 years. It's been going on since the Jewish-instigated Roman persecution of Christians. Earlier in Mein Kampf, in chapter 3 of that same volume, Hitler had said that, and I quote, political parties have no right to meddle in religious questions except when these relate to something that is alien to the national well-being. 
and thus calculated to undermine racial customs and morals. And Hitler explained elsewhere, and so is Fabricius, and it is certainly true that Christian customs and morals are indeed the customs and morals of the white race. Hitler continued by saying to a political leader, the religious teachings and practices of his people should be sacred and inviolable. Otherwise, he should not be a statesman, but a reformer, if he has the necessary qualities for such a mission. Any other line of conduct will lead to disaster, especially in Germany. And those fools that um, take writings of people like Rosenberg and try to use them as being um, representative of the National Socialist attitude towards Christianity. Those people are kidding themselves. Those people are liars, absolute liars. And the words and the actions of Adolf Hitler refute those people all the way through to the end of his, well, to what's perceived to be the end of his life in 1945. Back to Caius Fabricius. Where now does National Socialism stand? The answer is perfectly obvious. It is not on the side of free thinkers and their school, but it supports Christianity. Even in the early days of the national socialistic struggle for existence, it called with unerring truth, the good, good, evil, evil, the noble, noble, and what is mean, mean. And now that the reins of power has, have passed into the hands of the National Socialistic Movement. This moral attitude has been emphasized and upheld afresh in the words and deeds of the party, as well as in the decrees and acts of the state. Once again, youth has been brought under control. A vigorous war is being waged against evil. Crime receives its just punishment, and sentences are once more executed in the manner justifying their purpose. Since the party affirms this moral attitude, it is but reasonable that the National Socialistic State welcomes the Church as its ally, just because the latter severely condemns sin and keeps the conscience of the nation alive to its danger. The church has a very special mission in regard to the moral training of the nation, namely to stir up the hearts of men to their inmost depths and to bring to light with absolute directness the most subtle and most secret faults 
and by this means carefully instruct man as to what is good and what is evil. And as we have said throughout these presentations, true Christianity is expressed not with words or rituals, but in deeds and in actions. National Socialist Germany had enacted true Christianity into its laws, and therefore it was a Christian government in deed and action. Fabricius continues, Thus does the church perform its stupendous task of safeguarding the souls of men by forestalling evil. Many a man has been deterred from committing crime and from suffering punishment at the hands of the state. Conversely, it is but right for the national socialistic movement and the state it affirms to turn against all religions that menace this strictly moral attitude. Point 24 of our party program is invincible on this point. It refuses liberty of religious practice to all religious denominations which militate against the morality of the Germanic race. These include not only such religions wherein gross crimes and blasphemy occur, ritual murder, and religious unchastity, but also the expressly rejected spirit of Jewish materialism and all the closely allied reversals of values that call good evil and evil good, and are especially dangerous when they recommend themselves to the Third Reich as new religions desirous of serving the German folk. Nietzscheism, paganism, national socialism rejected these things. It rejected the licentiousness of the pagans. It rejected the moral relativism of Nietzsche. In addition, to its rejection of Judaism. National Socialism also fully embraced Christian morals, as Fabricius is also about to attest. Particular emphasis must again be laid on the fact that the conception of the seriousness of sin common to national common to national socialism and the Christian religion alike, and forming a tie between them is by no means contradictory to the heroic character which we assume, or at least hope, every German to have in the struggle for liberty today. A philosophy little suited to the heroic spirit is the shallow optimism found in free thinkers. This has not grown out of the heroic battle of life, but has had its being in the quiet rooms of learned men and is suited to contented, comfortable citizens who perform their daily round of duties and move along in the old rut without any great exertion on their part. The heroic man, on the other hand, 
Who has to dare something and fight hard, risking his very life for the great things, plunging boldly again and again into dangerous uncertainties, knows full well what is meant by imperfection, error, and wickedness. It is no mere pet theme of poets when they make their tragic heroes sinful. Life itself has taught them that it must be so. For it is just when on the heights in heroic life that backslidings occur. But again, the consciousness of imperfection in this case forms a foundation on which heroism may be built. The deeds of almost superhuman heroism performed by the sons of our folk as soldiers on the battlefield may be largely accounted for by the fact that at the beginning of their military training, these same soldiers were told day after day in the most emphatic manner possible how inferior, inadequate, and faulty their efforts were. Here again, at this most important point in the Christian spirit, the Christian spirit and national socialism are united against pagan free thought. This also applies in no less degree to the views on the growth of the new man, as Paul of Tarsus had also taught, albeit in a different context. Man becomes strong when he recognizes his weaknesses, and putting his faith in his creator, he strives to live up to the perfect image of his God, even if he cannot attain that perfection in this life. The second point Fabricius intends to make in this section on redemption is regeneration and the national uprising. And he begins by saying, that according to Christian conviction, the higher life takes possession of man through the tremendous educative power of the divine spirit operating within us, and which must be considered as a new creation that reaches its culminating point in what is known as regeneration, because it forms the beginning of our relationship to God as the Father, just as physical birth has made us human children, this regeneration has been experienced by countless Christians and by whole Christian nations. It has taken place as one great event or as a gradual growth in the lives of individuals and has also swept over nations either in one great awakening or has come to them and remained as perpetual inspiration. The meaning is always the same. The old man dies and a new man comes to life. Or, as Luther has put it in his well-known catechism, that the old Adam is to be drowned with all his sins and evil lusts, and that the new man should come forth who shall live in the presence of God in righteousness and purity forever. That is to say, he is snatched from a life in which hostility to God and subservience to the world predominate to a life in which we stand as children of God and victors over the world. While 
identity Christians would add to this description the same bounds which are seen in the covenants of Scripture. It is nevertheless the Christian objective that the nations of the anciently scattered children of Israel arise, are regenerated to reconciliation with God and to a part in the citizenship of the kingdom of heaven upon an acceptance of Christian morals and a cleansing away of their pagan immorality. Fabricius continues, in this upward growth of the new life, however, filled as it is with the bountiful plenitude of single experiences, two things stand out in sharp prominence. The experience of the divine forgiveness of sins and the attainment of strength to overcome sin. The repentant sinner is received into the house of God the Father just as he is, burdened with all his sins without having to climb step by step the weary path of gradual release from sin. This is forgiveness of sins. But here, where his soul breathes the divine essence, he feels the impulse to begin a new life in the strength of God. This leads to a steadily increasing progressiveness in overcoming sin. Everywhere in the great Christian churches and in the smallest of Christian communities where the gospel message is rightly understood, those two things are taught and experienced. It shows a misunderstanding of the Christian religion when the assertion is made that Christian salvation ends with the knowledge that sins are forgiven, whereby man still remains on the same level of proneness to miserable sin. There may be, it is true, many a superficial Christian whose interior life is dull and who is content with the casual cognizance of the divine forgiveness of sin. Christians of this type are still half outside, but not within the Father's house. And still less does Christian salvation end with man's believing himself able to fight against sin and having no need for the forgiveness of sin. There are assuredly seriously-minded Christians honestly struggling to live a sinless life, but these lack insight into their human weakness. Both are essential. Life in the fellowship of the Father and the working of the power of God within us form the perfect being of the new man. But of course, what Fabricius doesn't really teach, even though it's inferred, is what the apostles taught, that sin is violation of the law of God, and only the children of Israel were ever given that law and expected to keep it. Therefore, only the children of Israel require mercy and forgiveness of sin. Identity Christianity is the only entirely valid interpretation of Christianity because we identify exactly who the scattered children of Israel are in the world today and who they are not, and we do so with history and ancient inscriptions and languages 
and the realization of the fulfillment of the promises of the Word of God found in the prophets of the Old Testament. It's often said that the, um, the German people were converted to Christianity by force, and that is a half-truth, and it's really just a quarter-truth. Of course, the Goths and the Alans and several other ancient tribes from as early as the 3rd century AD and before the Romans themselves accepted Christianity voluntarily. When the Franks accepted Christianity, Christians were able to fight off the incursions of the Muslims under Charles Martel. And Charles Martel did that in spite of the Roman Catholic churches who stood against him because they would rather have kept their gold, which Martel took off them, deservedly took off them to pay his soldiers. They would have rather kept their gold and worshipped Allah than to keep their Christianity and pay Martel's soldiers. Charles Martel's um, descendants, Charlemagne. Charlemagne did us a lot of disfavors in other areas, especially with the um, his dealings with the Jews. So Charlemagne is not one of our heroes. But Charles Martel had fought with the Saxons because the Saxons kept invading and looting and pillaging the Franks. So the Germanic Saxons, in their pagan attitudes, could certainly not be seen as a benefit to the white race. They were destroying the rest of the white race. If you want to look at European history, from a realistic viewpoint instead of from your fairy tale pagan viewpoint. The Saxons were no friends to the rest of our race when they were pagans. So Charles Martel and his descendants forcibly converted the Saxons to accept Christianity. And what the pagans really miss, their real cognitive disconnect in this area of German history. Is that within two centuries, not even two centuries, of their forced conversion, we saw the establishment of the first great German empire under the Saxon king, Otto I. Now, there were Saxon kings in England who were just as great as Otto, Alfred the Great, for instance, and sometime before Otto. But Otto I marked a, a, a um, great moment in German history. 
that moment was only made possible by Christian Saxons and would have never happened if the Saxons had remained pagan. Back to Caius Fabricius. Those supporters of free thought and free religions, the pagans, who preach the natural goodness of man, no, no regeneration. In their opinion, man was perfect from the very beginning, and in such a measure that there is no need to speak of an inward conversion, or even of a new creation. True, a higher life, is dimly imagined at this point. But insofar as it is striven after, it does not occur in the experience of an overwhelming regeneration, but in a process of self-perfection, which is something that Nietzsche promoted. That is to say, in a gradual uplifting by means of one's natural strength, whereby the petty weaknesses and mistakes noticeable to oneself at times disappear and are ousted by more valuable achievements. And I must say that sin is a, as a concept. Sin is poorly defined in ancient pagan writings. And in many ancient pagan writings, the concept of sin was even non-existent. Furthermore, morality is relative both to Talmudic Jews as well as to naturalists such as Nietzsche. Therefore, where they talk of the natural goodness of man, they define that goodness according to their own standards. Standards which are relative, standards which are fluid, as opposed to the concrete standards of Christianity. When man himself, with these fluid standards, can make law and define sin, the inevitable result is tyranny. This is where pagans and humanists fail most miserably they would all subject themselves to a tyrant, to another man's laws, to another man's idea of good and evil and sin, which would change from generation to generation. They all fail to understand that true liberty is only realized in Christ, where morals are concrete and Rulers rule by the laws of Christ. Back to Fabricius. The National Socialistic Program, however, mentions in our point 24 the permanent health of our nation from within. It presupposes a spiritual and moral sickness of the folk that requires treatment and thinks of inner forces which will make this healing effectual. 
And so it was never thought that the German nation could ever be self-perfecting when the program was issued in 1920. The actual experiences in the history of the period between 1920 and 1933 far exceeded in their catastrophic character the slight references to, to sickness and permanent health in the party program. The sick folk became a folk doomed to die, and the movement, too, realized in the national uprising, did not develop smoothly and quickly in spite of the enormous expenditure of energy, but was sorely tried and disciplined by the great guide of human history and had perforce to endure on its weary way disappointments and reversals of fortune even imprisonment, bloodshed, and death. And even after assuming power, the movement had to fight against misunderstanding and obstinacy, and years will have to elapse before the difficult task of enlightening the nation is accomplished. Hostile elements subordinated and all misunderstandings respecting the basic principles of National Socialism, including all religious errors, swept away. And sadly, National Socialist Germany, or rather, we should say, Christian Germany, was destroyed by the international Jew. And those nations recruited to do the works of Satan by participating in that destruction. Now, with an ever-increasing volume of Jewish propaganda, the character of National Socialism is still much more misunderstood, even by many of those who claim to have embraced its ideals. Fabricius says, This, however, is not the self-perfection of a healthy race, but rather its rescue from perilous danger, necessitating painful operations and bitter remedies. It is a new creation, a regeneration. Here again, we find National Socialism in these, in these its experiences and in its manner of experiencing them, standing side by side with Christianity against the advocates of free thought. True, the uprising of the German folk is not a religious revival, but a national and moral regeneration. Why? Because Christianity is in actions and deeds and not in religious rituals and words. All Christian Germans, however, endowed with clear vision and living in this great era, see in the regeneration of the folk, a new creative act of God's that stirs up their hearts to the very depths. And it may be that the national awakening will lead to a real religious awakening, as has already been the case so many times in history when political revolutions have been accompanied by earnest religious revivals. Perhaps we too may now experience an awakening 
to a new holiness of life. And of course, Germany as a nation, refounded on Christian principles, did indeed experience such an awakening. However, it was quickly destroyed by Jewish treachery and the deceit of the English and the Americans. Now, England and America are in turn being destroyed by those same Jews. The final point Fabricius offers in this section on redemption is titled The Redeemer and the Fuhrer, because they are not to be confused. Before <laughs> excuse me, before we present what Fabricius has to say in this respect, we must illustrate the fact that even a casual study of the words of Adolf Hitler reveals his belief that he and his nation were indeed guided by the hand of a god who alone governed its fate. Hitler saw himself as a tool in the hand of that god. Towards the beginning of the war, in his famous No More Churchill speech at the Lowenbrau Keller in 
it can be demonstrated, and I won't go into it at length here. It can be demonstrated from the opening pages of Volume 2, Chapter 2 of Mein Kampf that Hitler did not advocate any worship of the state. And that is fully demonstrated in his criticisms of those who would worship the state when he wrote that book. So Brigius commences with this section, The Redeemer and the Fuhrer, by saying, The growth of new life that rises from the Christian attitude of mind is, like the whole of life and his relationship to God, made real through the life of Jesus Christ alone. If Jesus had not come into the world as the Christ, that is to say, as one anointed with the Spirit of God, then we should not exist as Christians, that is, as those anointed with the Spirit of God. And that's a true teaching of Christianity in relation to the children of Israel. Our regeneration and new creation take place only through the strength of Jesus Christ. Death and resurrection of our inner life is death and resurrection with Jesus Christ. And the reality of our new life does not merely rest upon the fact that a general Christ principle or a divine redeeming power exists in the world, but only because Jesus appeared as man amongst men in human abasement and within the narrow limits of this earthly life, made real the fullness of the divine life. Are we participators in the divine spirit and are thus able to call God our Father in this spirit? It is true that Christendom is not of opinion that there is no other divine revelation except through Jesus Christ. On the contrary, we know that God's hand is to be traced in history and nature. We are convinced, however, that the revelation of God was made complete in Jesus Christ and that from him, for the first time, full light was shed upon the meaning of history, nature, and one's own life. And, and this is one place, and it was evident earlier, where Fabricius had stated that um. God worked throughout history in the other religions, not Judaism and Christianity, but the, the, the other religions of the other races. And that's one aspect where Fabricius's universalist theology is most greatly at fault. Being a Christian mystic, he wants to see the same God in every historic religion. And therefore, he promotes Christianity as just one expression among many of what he conceives to be the same universal religion. Therefore, the Catholics and those Protestants who followed in this universalism have for centuries wasted many of their resources attempting to convert the alien nations which can never bear the fruit of our white race embracing Christianity. The Bible teaches that 
out of all the nations, whether they're white or otherwise, the Christian God dealt only with the children of Israel, and that they were his children regardless of their condition. This is true even when they had not yet heard the gospel. And we see that in John chapter 11, that it was the purpose of Christ that he also should gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad, a reference to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. This is a constant promise to the Old Testament children of Israel who were indeed scattered abroad over 600 years before Christ, that their Messiah would gather them to himself. That's a promise that only this remnant of our white race can have, where God, where the hand of God is to be traced in history and nature, we should see in the history of our race, and it's absolutely manifest when compared with scripture and archaeology and secular classical history, <clears throat> where the revelation of God existed in the world before Christ, we can only find that in nature, in the aspect of his creation, as Paul explains in Romans chapter 1, but we only find that in word through the prophets of God found in our Bibles. The other religions and their dogmas are absolutely contrary to the word of our God because they do not reiterate, instruct, and repeat the laws of our God by which we know that he is God. Fabricius goes on to say, it is not our task in these pages to solve the mystery of the person of Christ, nor to enlarge on the profound thoughts concerning him that have occupied men's minds for nearly 2,000 years. We simply wish to show that everything we have already said respecting kinship with God, dominion over the world, loving one's neighbor, forgiveness of sin and overcoming sin, is but a cursory description of the fullness of life emanating from Jesus Christ, from him who, by his work, teaching death and resurrection was at the same time for us, in us, and over us, and will be so to all eternity. Free thinkers and the supporters of free religions, by which he criticizes the pagans as well, object to the Christian's belief in Christ. They do so because it is in no way compatible with their mode of thought that the power of God could possibly be revealed in one human individual. To them, the divine, is generally some indistinct conception of being, or of nature, or of mankind. And they fail to understand the creative power of that which happens only once, and as such is incomprehensible. It is most difficult to convince them that a Redeemer lived in all humility on earth, suffering even on the cross and dying there. At the most, they can conceive the divine as glorified and exalted, but not in the poverty, 
narrowness, and distress of earthly life. And when freethinkers emphasize the goodness, the perfection, and godliness of the natural powers of man, it appears to them a contradiction of terms to speak of a Redeemer who came to save sinners and gave his life for them. And the way in which the Universalist Church teaches the reasons for the death of Christ for sin strips it of its true meaning. And here I will try to express it in the most worldly terms possible. Because the death of Christ is only necessary within the bounds of the Hebrew law and the understanding that the ancient nation of Israel was bound to its God in a contract whereby they merited death when they violated that contract. That was part of the deal. God keeping his own laws and yet desiring to preserve these children of Israel, he chose to die for them so that they would be released from the contract. God dying for the children of Israel in this manner. The new covenant, which is a new contract, is offered only to those same children of Israel. Until we, as white Europeans, understand that we did indeed descend from the ancient children of Israel, we have no concept as to how Christianity properly and historically applies to us, and only to us. The other races have no historical part in any of this. And the Jews are in fact infiltrators and interlopers who only claim these things for themselves, but neither do they belong to them. Fabricius goes on to say, again, in this important point, national socialists, as is compatible with their whole attitude of mind, are on the side of Christianity and not of free thought. For like Christians, they have not gained their views of life from any systems of philosophy, but from the stern realities of life. One fact in this struggle for existence has become to them an overpowering reality, the Fuhrer. In him, they have experienced the incontestable fact that all great happenings in history do not originate in the universal, but in the particular. Not in crowds, but in some great personality. In him, too, they have experienced that great historical deeds are not only planned in the magnificence of royal palaces or the official boards of parliaments and ministries or even in the buildings of large banking houses, but they may have their source in one simple life that started in modest circumstances, having to struggle onward through poverty and privation and after much hard fighting, finally reaches the height, and even on the height, thinks only of self-denial and sacrifice. And here it is evident 
that Hitler did not claim to be a messiah, and that Fabricius is not trying to make him one. But rather, Fabricius understood that the circumstances of Hitler's life could, in some ways, be compared to that of Christ, who from a humble state had risen to be a servant to his people. So Fabricius understood of Hitler that the life of Christ should be the model for Hitler's life, which is a proper Christian understanding that Hitler rose from very humble circumstances to be a servant of his people. And even when he rose to be the leader of his people, he remained a servant to his people. And Fabricius continues by asserting much that same thing. But never do national socialists think of confusing the Führer with the Redeemer. Our Führer himself would utterly condemn the mere suggestion of any such idea. The political Führer who sets his people free is not the savior of the world who calls them to repentance. But in the fact that something stupendously great has manifested itself in a single personality, in circumstances which might appear to be akin, Christians ought all the more readily grasp the fact of the Fuhrer and national socialists more easily that of the Redeemer, where both Christianity and national socialism unite, perfect harmony must necessarily exist. But there is more. Interconnections also exist. The Fuhrer himself belongs to those who fulfill the will of God and realize the life of Christ in this life in an extraordinary degree. The Fuhrer is in uniting the nation and helping it to rise from the laxity and neglect into which it had fallen to a sense of moral discipline fulfills the law of Christ Respecting love in a way few mortals could ever hope to emulate. By defending with a strong hand the spiritual heritage of the German nation against the powers of darkness, he also protects our most sacred possession, the gospel, guaranteeing, moreover, the further spread of its power. And when he himself, in the strength of his trusting God, places the destiny of the whole nation in the hands of the Father, he manifests the spirit which, through the coming of Christ, has become a living power in the world. And we have seen this same attitude was expressed in the speeches of Adolf Hitler right up through his last recorded address given in January of 1945. And with this, we will go right to the conclusion of Fabricius's booklet, where he wrote, the results of our investigations have produced conclusions so simple and clear that they might well be spoken of as a matter of course. 
This must also be said of the religious policy of the Third Reich, but it is extremely difficult to put what is taken for granted into practice. For nowhere is our German nation so difficult to govern as in the domain of spiritual things, and especially with respect to religion. Here, individual opinions abound and assert themselves to such an extent that unanimity can only be achieved with very real difficulty. Moreover, the changing influences that marked the last epochs of intellectual life, where the Jews got a bigger and bigger share of the media and publishing operations of Christendom could not fail to create a feeling of bewilderment in men's minds, which of necessity place great obstacles in the way of all attempts to enlighten and unite those at variance with each other. And yet, the solution of the religious question is of paramount importance today. Indeed, it is perhaps the most urgent and imperative of all questions. At a time when, as now, the firm spiritual foundations are being laid for a life in a great nation, order must be created in the innermost sphere of all. But the energy and great wisdom of our Fuhrer will assuredly find the proper way out of all difficulties. And we, as Christian National Socialists, firmly believe that the guide of the history of nations will direct this most sacred cause of the German people to a glorious end. Of course, when this booklet was written, the war and the destruction of Christian Germany at the hands of the real Antichrist, which is indeed the international Jew, had not yet begun. Adolf Hitler's National Socialist Germany was indeed the last Christian crusade. It failed and it failed for reasons of biblical prophecy and the will of God that Adolf Hitler could not have foreseen nor known. In the end, rest assured, Adolf Hitler, the National Socialists, and the German people shall indeed be vindicated and they will be vindicated completely because our race owes the Jews a holocaust and they have it coming. Tomorrow night, Martin Luther in Life and Death. Part 7. It's been a while. Tomorrow night we intend to assert that Martin Luther's Reformation had only succeeded because the pagan humanists, who were much more numerous, put their lot with Luther.
That doesn't make Luther any less a Christian, but he couldn't have done it without the pagans, and that is true. The pagans joined with Luther because they desired to diminish the power of the papacy. Next Friday, we will return to our biblical studies on Friday night with the minor prophet, Zephaniah. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh. And good night.